You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Yoga Inspiration Show. I hope these talks give you a little bit of inspiration to keep practicing and make your world a better place. Yoga is more than just a physical practice. It's a lifelong spiritual journey and we constantly need sustenance to help us stay on the path. So I hope you find that sustenance right here and I look forward to seeing you on the mat. Namaste, yogis and friends. I'm Kino McGregor. And I'm Tim Feldman. And we would like to welcome you to Miami Life Center's podcast. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Let's get started with the opening prayer. We'll do the Om together and then just repeat after me. Sandarshita Swatma Sandarshita Swatma Sukavabode Sukavabode Nishreyase Nishreyase Jangalikayamane Jangalikayamane Samsara Hala Hala Samsara Hala Moha Shantye, Moha Shantye, Abahu, Abahu, Purushakaram, Purushakaram, Shankachakrasi, Shankachakrasi, Dharinam, Dharinam, Sahasrashirasam, Shwetam, Shwetam, Pranamami, Pranamami, Patanjalim, Patanjalim. So welcome, yogis and friends, to this discussion of the Niyamas. It's a pleasure to see so many people um, joining this discussion. Um, and this is the second class in what I assume are eight talks. And yes. yes, since there are eight limbs in the Ashtanga Yoga Method, that's a fair assumption. And I'm glad to find out that it was a valid assumption as well. Now, before we begin, kind of unpacking what the niyamas are, I just want to take a moment and kind of cast our discussion in an understanding of what yoga is, what yoga has always been, and what yoga represents. And so the first question that I believe that every 
yoga practitioner and sincere seeker of the spiritual path needs to ask is, what is yoga for you? You know, why do you continue to come to the practice? As yoga begins to be increasingly more popular and there are so many more people practicing yoga, there is sort of the, the risk that the yoga tradition gets diluted by being sort of spread so popularly in our contemporary culture, particularly in the Western world. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> and um, I'll just say for the people who are going to listen on the podcast that my husband, who's quite the jokester, just did something very funny. <laughs> so we're not laughing at, you know, what I said before. Um, <laughs> to make that clear. Um, so, you know, what comes to my mind is, is that, you know, we're all, we're not, uh, we're all modern yogis. We're all, uh, in many ways, very privileged people to be able to take time out of our day each day to dedicate to the spiritual journey of yoga. We have time on a Friday night to come and talk about the deeper spiritual questions of yoga. And at the same time, we are what's called householders, which means we hold jobs. We have worldly responsibilities. And I would imagine that every one of us here, and certainly the people who are listening, have some sort of account on social media. Would that be fair to say? You know, and that if part of your interaction with the yoga tradition involves looking at pictures or videos of people doing yoga. So we have to ask ourselves as we come to the mat, what is yoga to me? You know, what is yoga? What does it represent? Is it simply a, a chance to mold the body into a shape that's photographable? You know, is it a chance to fit the mold of what yoga has largely become popularized as in our contemporary and mainstream society? And, and I think we have to ask ourselves that question, not only as an individual, but that's very important for us as an individual to kind of take the time and reflect, what is yoga to me? Why do I practice? An individual. I practice yoga for the same reason that I started practicing yoga when I was 19 years old and when I turned to the Ashtanga Yoga Method when I was 22 years old because I was looking for a more peaceful life. And now, more than 20 years later, I can say that when I get off my mat, each day I'm a little bit more peaceful and that I believe that the practice is the power to change my world in that way, to bring a little bit more peace and yes, a little bit more love into myself and into my interactions with others. But it can't stop there because then, you know, if we simply think, well, this makes me happier, this makes me more peaceful, there are so many things which could make you happier. You know, for example, there are a lot of happy people over on Ocean Drive right now. Um, <laughs> You can walk by them, although I think their happiness is um, an alcoholic-assisted version of happiness. Um, they're, they're at least temporarily happy until tomorrow morning. <laughs> There'll be a solution for that, though. Um, we won't get into that too much. Um, so, so we have to ask ourselves also, what is yoga contextually, historically? What does it represent, and why has it survived all these years? So more than anything else, I think it's important to understand that the quest, which is the essential nation, the nature of yoga is an ancient spiritual tradition. It comes from India. It's not invented by somebody in the United States of America. You know, it's not invented in that way. It has been received 
by students who have made the journey perhaps to India or to study with, you know, established teachers who are living outside of India. And at some moment that created its own branches and people have benefited from that. But the origins of yoga can be traced back always historically, culturally, to the rich spiritual tradition of India. And historically, in that context, yoga is a spiritual path. The asanas were always simply one component of a holistic approach to orient the mind of the yogi really and ultimately to the highest truth. And traditionally, according to yoga, the highest truth is the realization of God. So we, we think about, you know, here we are and we're trying to jump back or we're trying to jump through or we're trying to put our legs behind our head or try to do deeper back bends. And somewhere along the way, it's sort of so easy to get stuck on the journey of yoga at these different sort of stops along the way. So here we are. And maybe if you think for a moment, why did I come to the practice? Maybe you came to the practice searching for peace like I did. Maybe you came to the practice searching for healing Many people do, who suffer from chronic pain, back pain, injuries. And then the yoga practice was like a bomb that brought sort of healing into places in the body that were just not touched by conventional means and modalities of pain relief. And, and, and maybe there was something in your heart that was healed from doing the practice, a sense of self-worth, a sense of beingness that was lacking, a sense of the sacred that was lacking. Well, all of these are wonderful personal reasons, and yet I ask you to look for more. You know, if the yoga practice is a search for God, a search for true self-realization, to understand who you are through the eyes of spirit, who you are at your highest level and your deepest potential, this realization is the reason that yoga has survived as a tradition for thousands of years. And it's the reason why it doesn't really matter if people get lost for a little bit at those kind of stations of it being interested in too much yoga poses or being interested in what clothes they're wearing or not understanding where the practice comes from. As long as people keep practicing, as long as you keep practicing, sooner or later, you know, yoga will peel away every false belief, every false perception, every delusion, every place where you're out of integrity, every place where you need to be stronger, every place where you as a yogi need to be woken up. The practice sooner or later will wake you up. And your only thing you have to do is keep practicing. And this is important to remember. There are so many people who get stuck in their obsession about asana. Are any of you obsessed with an asana right now? Don't be embarrassed if you are. You know, we all have our asana obsessions and, they, and, and that's fine. And, and so we, it's sort of like yoga is this straight and narrow road which leads you to the truth. It's a revolution, you could say, of spiritual realization. And it's a bold choice in a materially oriented world. It's a bold choice to orient to the spiritual. So if we think about the analogy of a road, so here we are and we're walking down this spiritual path and the path is simultaneously a metaphor of an actual path, but it's very important to remember that the true journey of yoga is non-linear. It's not like we do the eight limbs and we're at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's not like that. The eight limbs and every experience in the journey of yoga is meant to um, kind of mesh together and be holistic and lead you into a deeper sense of self.
And it's not like we can check off the limbs, the eight limbs in the Ashtanga method and the yamas and the niyamas like boxes of good personhood so that we can wear them like a badge. Oh, I attained all my yamas today. Oh, I attained all my niyamas today. And we may as well make a trophy called niyama and put it on our shelf, you know, next to our forgotten high school trophies if you had any of those. I, I actually didn't. Um, I was never on a sports team or anything like that. Um, you know, for better or worse. So if we think, well, maybe there was one trophy. I think it was from the debate team. <laughs> I think there was one. We've all got one of those. Um, so, so, if we, so we think about, you know, yoga as a path, and we understand that even that metaphor is uh, insufficient, really, to touch the true depth of the practice. And yet, that path is a, is a sort of straight and narrow road which leads to the truth, which leads, and what is the truth, but the highest self-realization or God-realization, the experience of the infinite, right? And everything else is tangential. Everything else is material. So this means that even when we're thinking of asana, it is a, a, a slight departure from the true path. Even when we're, especially actually when we're stressing about the practice, this is a slight departure. You know, when we're thinking, oh no, I only have 10 minutes to practice today. You know, oh, I feel so, I'm a bad yogi. And we generate guilt about, then we start to veer off of what is the true path. When we start to, to, to think about all of, our, all of our flaws and all of our doubts, we start to question whether we're worthy or good enough to attain that realization, we start to feel like, oh, I'll never be spiritual enough, or, oh, I'll never be flexible enough, or, you know, I started when I was too old or too young, or I'm just not cut out for this, you know? Um, as, soon, as soon as we get lost in those places, then we've, we're off that we're deviating from the path. Of course, when we orient towards other things, you know, outside of the spiritual tradition, we're off the path. So what are other things outside of the spiritual tradition? Well, when we are motivated from the ego, this is also a departure from the spiritual path. When we turn a blind eye to social injustice, this is a departure from the path. When we turn a blind eye to untruth in the world, on truth in ourselves, when we believe our illusions, this is a departure from the path. The path of yoga is a revolution. It's fierce and in many ways, while it does help you to love yourself, the process of loving yourself often means coming to terms with all the darkness inside of yourself that instead of loving, you'd rather keep away. So every time we divert from the path in any way, then, you know, it's an opportunity for us to stumble and fall and recalibrate towards the spiritual journey of the practice. Now, when we look at the niyamas, which are the second limb of the traditional Ashtanga yoga path defined by Patanjali's yoga sutras, we look at what are typically called the moral and ethical observances the, 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 that the yogi it takes on for themselves. And we always have to remember that there are two categories of yogis. There are householders, which I said before, and these are what we all are, which means, you know, it doesn't mean like, oh, I'm, I, I'm the breadwinner of my family and that sort of thing. That just means like, you have a family, you have a job, you, you know, have an economic exchange in the world, you pay rent and earn a living and buy things in the world. You are in the world in some way, yet striving to be not of it. 
this is the path of the household. My teachers have always been householders, um, with, with few exceptions, few and far between in terms of exceptions. Now, there's another path when we look at the application of the moral codes of yoga, and the other path is what's called the path of the renunciate, the path of the sannyasin. This is someone that's taken vows of worldly renunciation. So this would be someone that we can understand in our Western terms like a monk or a nun, someone who would not be paid for their teaching services and someone who would live off of the dana or the giving of others. Their life is an act of seva, an act of service. This is another person. If you choose to take the vows to become a sannyasin or to become a monk, then you would be held to a very high standard. Householders are expected to fail at all of the yamas and the niyamas. So I just want you to take a deep breath and let yourself off the hook. I am a total failure at the, namas and, at the yamas and niyamas. Can't even say them right now, okay? Um, and, and, and that's good, that's okay. Human foibles are faults. This is what makes us human. And even the sannyasin will fail at some moment. The renunciate will fail at some moment. We're all human in that way. The only perfect being in my estimation is God. And although we're striving to set our sights on God, we should never assume that now we uh, become the, you know, the, the, the divine perfection. We can merge with it and experience it and even uh, sort of taste a glimmer of it. But I think it's perhaps one of the most uh, greatest expressions of hubris to think now I am and I have become, you know, the original creator God, um, you know, or we've, we've really deluded ourselves in that way. Now, let's take a look at these niyamas. The niyamas are interesting because they're again, moral and ethical observances that every yogi takes on for themselves. The, it, this stands in contrast to the yamas, which are often understood to be moral and ethical observances to define how the yogi relates with society. So I find that extremely interesting that we place, uh, that, that Patanjali you know, talks about how the yogi is in the world prior to how the yogi is with themselves. And it could be argued that the commitment to maintain yogic values in the in the world has a precedence. You know, um, if you're a householder, if you interact in the world, to abide by those moral and ethical principles in the world kind of means that yoga is an instrument of well, an instrument of social justice. And if you if we don't read it that way, then. I think we should go back and just take a deeper look at the at the yamas because what what else is ahimsa than preventing um, particularly beings that are uh, you know in marginalized groups or in non-dominant groups of society beings with less privilege and power than we are preventing them from experiencing harm at the very least by our own actions if not by the actions of dominant cultures. So we need to think about that and, and take responsibility on, on that level. The niyamas I feel are there actually to give us that strength, to be those torch holders of truth, of peace, of kindness in the world, and, and to actually begin to take action. So let's take a look at the first niyama. Does anyone remember where it starts? Have you been studying the sutras? Do you remember you're nodding your head? Saucha. Saucha. Let's start with saucha. Saucha is cleanliness. Yes? So we talk about cleanliness. We think, oh no, you know, cleanliness. Oh, some of you have been doing you know, yoga asana all day because we've got this intensive course going on. And so immediately when you hear cleanliness, you think, hmm, 
I suppose I need a shower, right? (laughs) So the first and basic cleanliness actually is to keep the body clean. And, you know, this includes basically taking a shower every day if you can, if it's available to you. And at the same time, uh, caring for the temple of the spirit, which is your body, keeping it in a state of cleanliness. Part of the purpose of yoga asana is to create that state of cleanliness in the internal organs so that the body is cleansed from the inside out. Now, it should also be said that the a preface or the presupposition of the niyamas is that they will be practiced by the householder in moderation. Moderation. So if we have some enthusiastic householder yogis that hear, I must purify my, you know, my body. Right? I must abide by total strict saucha. And then we read all of these things that are potentially harmful for the body. A friend of mine just told me that now there's like this list of like the big 12 or 15 fruits or vegetables which you shouldn't eat unless they're organic. So then you go around and think, oh, you know, is my kale organic? You know, and you start to stress out if the kale is not anything. I'm, I must maintain saucha. So I cannot have any pesticides at all. And if I have a, some sort of food item with pesticides, I have to do a liver cleanse for 10 days after and check myself into some liver deep heavy metal cleansing facility. So this would not be, you know, moderation, right? This would be extreme. And we think about, you know, saucha within the field of the body. And of course, what we eat makes a difference. I'm sure that Tim talked to you a little bit already about the commitment, um, uh, the moral and ethical commitment for a plant-based or primarily vegan diet uh, based in ahimsa. Well, it's also based in saucha. So we're thinking about cleanliness in the body. And the truth of the matter is that what you eat has a a direct impact on the health of your body, you know? And we don't want to take that to a a crazy extreme, but the idea is that, you know, there's a certain element of foods that are more clean than others. And I don't think it takes too much logic to figure that out. I mean, I think we all know when we're eating junk food, even if it's vegan, right? (laughs) Pretty obvious, all right? So we think about it from this perspective, saucha of the body. Saucha of the body, or how we treat our body, how we care for the body, how we clean the body from the inside, how we give the body also the nourishment it needs in order to be healthy. The nourishment, the care. Saucha is another form of self-love. If we think about how we are caring for the body, the nurturing space, of saucha, to keep something clean means also to care for it. So this is on the physical level. Within ourselves, we also have another sphere which is perhaps even more important to place our awareness on. And this is the sphere of our thoughts, right? If you live your life eating extremely pure foods, But in your mind, you're thinking negative thoughts, judgmental thoughts. You become rigid, dogmatic about the types of foods that you eat or about anything, the systems that are in your life. You become a very structured, rigid, organized person that cannot deviate from that, you know, plan in any way. And then, or or, or sort of the world comes crashing down. If you end up thinking negative thoughts about yourself, 
your body and let that be your motivation to try to eat in a particular way or behave in a particular way, then the quality of your thoughts is more powerful than anything you can put into your body. So thinking pure thoughts, not only about the world, but about yourself. Self-directed negativity is probably one of the most destructive things that the yogi can engage in. Self-denigrating self thoughts, which go far beyond humility, but go into self-harm. I know we all think thoughts like that throughout the day. Watch your thoughts, clean your thoughts. So what's the instruction of the saucha? Clean your thoughts. There are some methods for cleaning the thoughts. The first method of cleaning the thoughts, well, your yoga practice, you know? Because you sit there and you get this amazing laboratory between the asana and the breath and focusing on your nose or your toes or the drishtis, hopefully we're doing those, you know. And, um, and, then, and then you think thoughts and there are thoughts that come filtering in and you get to see who you are, you know, underneath your thoughts underneath your sort of superficial thoughts. Now, I've so many times when I've been practicing, I've had a thought come up like, you know, Kino, your thighs are too big. You'll never be able to do this. And more recently, I have a thought, Kino, you're too old now. Leave that for the younger people, you know? It's enough that it was, you know, you tried when you were younger. You're like, how old are you, you know? So, um, you know, it's interesting. It's always, it's all, there's always someone younger, right? After you've been born, there's always gonna be someone younger. <laughs> That's a losing battle. Um, so, so we think thoughts. You know, you think thoughts. You get mad at yourself. You know, frustrated. I see. I, I, I've been there as a student, and I see this as a teacher. You know, when you have a student that puts all their heart and all their soul into something, nasana, that they're trying to work on, it doesn't work out. And I can see and sense the defeat, the feeling of a failure. The feeling of blame, as though we're blaming the body. We feel like we're using the failure at asana that day to feel like we're not good enough. That is, that is the opportunity to rid yourself of that in your life. That has arisen during your practice so that you can realize, I'm carrying this stuff around inside. Because I'm sure that, you know, we've all failed at asanas at least, probably at least once a practice. I don't think I've ever done a practice where I haven't failed in some various degree. If anything, just the idea that we should keep mulabandha engaged through the whole practice, you know, I don't think I've ever succeeded in that. You know, in 20 years, there's always been some posture where I was like, oh, mulabandha. Who would have thought of that? Let me go find my anus, you know? And, right? So, you know, it's important when we see that, right? And it, it's, you know, when, when, you're, when, when you failed at an asana, if you beat yourself up about it and you use it as fuel for your own self-hatred, this is the opposite of saucha. When you fail and you use it as fuel to become a better person, to learn, to generate humility, to generate wisdom and compassion for yourself and for your world, then the, this is saucha, right? It's not that we should be perfect, but that we should use every instant to lead ourselves back to that path, that loving path, which is the essence of the yoga practice. Now, the expression of thought is speech. So we ideally purify speech as well. Now, this is, of course, something, you know, 
relatively easy to think about. Um, I used to watch this program called The Wire. Have you seen that? The Wire. It's an HBO series. It's kind of very funny. I, I don't recommend it. It's, it is a nice series. But the, the negative thing that happened is they curse a lot. Um, I mean, and they just use cursing as like as their method of, you know, dramaturgical expression. And it's quite entertaining. But I realized that while I was watching that HBO series, I adopted um, some of the X-rated language, you know, of the show. And I needed to perform nostalgia um, to remove those expressions that would be bleeped. Right. And uh, this is something to look at. You know, do we need to curse? I'm not saying we should never do that. And sometimes you absolutely do. But sometimes we get into a habit of just sprinkling these words that we've heard in songs or on HBO series, you know, around. And then it begins to be integrated into our being. And then we have these these very powerful words. And I would even caution you, extra caution you, if English is your second language and you feel like it's okay to curse in English because it's your second language. I, I, I've, um, I've noticed that, 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 that the speech is almost more impactful um, in the language that you've learned first. So for those of you that speak a second language or, or speak English as a second language, think about cursing in your first language. And then that's, that's the impact. And, and it's true either way, whether it's another language or not, you know? Um, so we have, that's the basic idea. The first and most basic thing, ask yourself if it's necessary to absolutely curse in that moment. And this is just a basic idea. However, at a much higher level, purifying our speech means speaking words of life over ourselves, speaking words of life over our world and our actions, speaking words of life over our dreams and our bodies, rather than speaking words of fear, speaking words of death, speaking words of doubt and disbelief, right? Rather than saying, I'll never do this posture, say, maybe one day I will. Rather than saying, I'm so in debt, I don't know how I'll ever afford to go to India, start to say, I commit to finding a way to balance my economy, right? Rather than saying, I don't know if I'll ever find a relationship, start to say, I love myself so much so that it doesn't matter how I need no one else to ever complete me. Speak words of life over yourself, right? And, and an interesting way to think about this, how powerful words are. I don't know if you've ever uh, been in a situation where you've been feeling a little under the weather. For me, one of the worst things that can happen to me when, um, well, maybe not, because I, 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 let me finish the story here. So um, one, of the, one of the most annoying things that can happen if I'm feeling under the weather, if someone comes up to me and says, hey, how are you doing? You look a little tired. Are you not feeling well? I want to, like, something in me, sort of like a rage comes up in me. And I'm thinking, A, if I am not feeling well, don't point it out to me. B, I'm feeling fine. Don't speak words of death over me. You know, just if you, if you just generally want to ask, how's it going? And leave it open, you know, that's enough. Right. And uh, if someone is uh, in there, you probably I don't, if, if you have a friend that's like your worst case scenario, disaster friend, do you have a friend like that? Anything that's wrong? They're like, oh, my God, you get a flat tire. It's going to be a fortune. Oh, my God, your tires. They're so expensive. You're like, oh, my God. You, know, you can easily start freaking out. Right. Or you hear like a click in your body. And then your friend, you're, did you hear that? Your body clicked. 
I think something's broken, you know? <laughs> so this is words of death, right? Words of destruction, right? Or the power of suggestion is quite positive with your words, you know? Um, uh, sometimes things look awful. Uh, you know, I, for example, I was going for a walk on the beach and there was a huge rain cloud that started to gather and there started to be lightning in the rain cloud, you know? But I decided that I wanted to go for a swim, you know? So I looked up at the rain cloud and said, I love you, rain cloud. You can totally be there. And I believe in the blue sky. And I'm not saying I controlled the weather. It's Florida. We have, you know, extremely fungible weather. And this is probably why I didn't believe it was going to hit because, you know, it's Florida. It looks like it's going to rain. And then it goes, particularly on Miami Beach, it goes somewhere else. Um, so anyhow, there was sun. And I managed to go for a swim on the way here, which I always consider an absolute blessing and, 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 and an immense privilege to be able to live so close to the beach. So speaking words of life uh, is another way to perform saucha. If you notice yourself doubting yourself, if you notice yourself speaking words of uh, that express scarcity, that express lack, that express, I'm not good enough, I can't do it, I'll never do it, poor me. You, you hear words of yourself playing the victim or you hear words of yourself making and blaming someone else or the world for your problems. These are not saucha. They are not clean words, you know? And it's very difficult to speak in a way that is true and honest, responsible, and clear. And this is a big commitment. And again, remember, we'll all fail, but we, we have to think about what we're saying as we're saying it. And this is kind of the beginning of Saucha. One final thing that I think is important, even though the Niyamas are talking about how we interact with ourselves, the last component of Saucha, I think, is always the environment, the impact that we make on the environments. So, you know, the, uh, the immediate thought of this is that when you enter a space, the idea is to leave that space in a better condition than when you arrived. So we think about this, on, uh, I fail at this in hotel rooms all the time because I feel like, you know, uh, but I, uh, my husband is much better. He's, look, he's like, oh, we should clean up. And I'm like, but someone's job is to clean up, you know? If we clean up, then what are they going to be paid for? But of course, that's, that's, um, that's entirely narcissistic. <laughs> so, so the, and, and if it's an Airbnb or something like that, please clean up a lot because, you know, there's usually the owner comes in. Um, so we think about that. The yoga center, you know, you come in, you rent a mat, and or you use a, you, know, you borrow a mat, a loner mat. You move into the bathroom, and the space is around you. I can't tell you how many times, not necessarily here, but in places, I've gone into a bathroom where there's a useless. Um, strip of toilet paper left on a roll, you know, and someone has obviously used this before. And then there's like a wall of toilet paper. And, and then you think, hmm. And I, you know, make a thought and think, well, Saucha, cleanliness, first of all, make sure the toilet always flushes. And if not, please alert someone. Um, and then the second thing is to think about, well, if you were the one to leave half of a toilet roll, would you think about it again as a yogi? You, you know, yes. I'm not make, trying to make you all change the toilet rolls here, okay? We, <laughs> we, we're happy to do that. But, but, but anywhere in the world, you know, to think about, oh, how have I left this place? You know, where did I put my trash? How have I left the world? How have I cared for my earth, for my portion of the earth? How have I cared for that? How have my actions impacted the planet, my community, people around me? How have my actions impacted the holistic sense of society? Who am I in society? 
how can I maintain salja, um, purity, in terms of body, in terms of speech, in terms of thought, and the impact that it has on my immediate surroundings, you know, my house, my room, the, the things I interact with, but also the impact on the planet. That includes not only plants and animals, but especially other human beings. This is important. Some of the most compassionate people towards animals and plants will turn a blind eye to the suffering of their fellow human being. And so when we think about Saucha, the impact that it, we make, it includes, it's very important, it includes other human beings and especially human beings that we have a hard time identifying with because they don't look like us or talk like us. They're not in the same socioeconomic strata as we are. So it's very important. We can have compassion for a plant and think about how plants should be treated. We can have compassion for an animal and think about how an animal should be treated. We can have compassion for the people who are in our community and our world as a whole. This is something that, that is inherent, not only in the yamas, but also in the niyamas. And I believe is, is, is truly a natural expression of the yogi's path. So we have saucha, we've got a few more. So the next one is santosha. So santosha is, uh, is, uh, is usually translated, who, who can tell me what this is normally translated? <laughs> Contentment, yeah. Let's break this down in the Sanskrit. Santosha, so we have two words, okay? Everything all together, dosha, contented, satisfied, acceptance. Usually we say contentment. Now I can also, by breaking these two words down, say total acceptance. Complete acceptance, radical acceptance, 100% acceptance, right? Complete, complete and total satisfaction with all that is, right? This is hard to <laughs> practice, right? Very, very hard to practice. So how do we practice this? My biggest practice of Santosha uh, really comes from the foundation of my meditation practice. And the meditation practice uh, gives you an opportunity to practice being okay with things that annoy you, you know? Uh, sitting for long periods of time. Now we've been sitting here for what, like 40 minutes or something. How many of you have changed position numerous times? Yes? Many times. We've been making little shifts. We go over here, we go over there. The body produces pain, you know? And, and then now they're chanting next door. Some of you are thinking, oh, it's wonderful they're chanting next door. And some of you are thinking, oh, it's extremely annoying. You know, why do they have to do this right now? Couldn't they have done it all together when we were chanting, you know? Then, then we wouldn't be disturbed by this chanting. In other words, in every situation, there will always be some noise, some sensation, some squeaking thing in a quiet room you would rather do without, some person at some moment who annoys you just because they're breathing in a funny way, you know? <laughs> some food that you once loved, which now you hate, you know? At some moment, even the sunshine gets to be annoying. You know, I, ju I just talked to someone today who's in Scotland and he said, I'm so glad it's raining today. And I thought, I thought that the people in the United Kingdom, they get so excited when the sun comes out. He said, yeah, we've got too much sun now. Now we don't like it. You know, I thought, oh, okay. You know, right. So santosha is the ability to say whatever is simply is. Another way to think about it, again, not only complete acceptance, but innocent perception. Perception devoid of your agenda. 
right? So we all have an agenda. So why did my Scottish friend hate the sunshine? Well, it had been sunny for so long that there was a drought and he's taking care of some forest area that is, is you know, they can't, it's a natural forest and they can't water it. There's no sprinkler system. So he's sort of, you know, a, a sort of forest ranger. So he really wanted the rain because there was an agenda. Yeah, I want the plants to be happy. I'm a care of, it was compassionate towards the plants. I want the rain. This is the agenda. So as soon as you have an agenda, you can't practice santosha. Your desire starts to bring you off center. So now because there is desire, then you're not content, right? And the, the sort of downward spiral of this is that if you search for contentment outside of yourself, then you will always be searching for the rest of your life. But if you can be content, satisfied, full, accepting of yourself and root your sense of wholeness within yourself, then this gives you the space between you and your world, you and the stimulus and the sensations that come in the body to be free. So acceptance is also freedom. So you observe, today, how many of you woke up sore today? I know many of you woke up sore. <laughs> many of you, because you have said to me this morning, you know, I am sore, <laughs> you know, I'm so sore. Please help. <laughs> no, I can't help, but we take rest eventually, you know. Um, we have a day off, you know, the unfortunate, the sort of the hidden truth about, you know, yoga practice is that you get really sore from it, you know, like your body. You feel better, but you also suffer on some level, you know, like your muscles, you're jumping back and then the arms are sore and you're doing back bending and your back gets a little sore and you're trying to put your leg behind your head. You just walk funny for a little bit, you know. <laughs> so it's one of these things people don't advertise. Everyone advertises, you know, like quiet, like a peaceful face and like, hmm. And then, you know, you try to do that. And the next day you're like, oh, wow, OK, I'm going to try to hobble over to the yoga center now, <laughs> take a class again. Eventually it does get a little better, um, eventually, after, you know, a good 10 or 15 years. <laughs> um, <laughs> keep practicing, like I said, right? So radical acceptance, whatever is simply is, but we cannot stop there because what is acceptance? So if we think about this, when, if you think for a moment, when is the last time you felt completely accepted for who you are and you were free to just be yourself? Just think about that for a moment. Think about that, right? And you're like, hey, hey. Some of you are having a hard time bringing that up. You're like, I am, um, hmm. Well, there was that one time, you know? Or you might remember uh, the experience of falling in love. Right. This moment when, you know, you're just talking to someone and nothing particular is going on, but you're sharing this intimacy and you're just saying meaningless things about your day. And the person that you're speaking to is looking at you in this kind of, you know, wow, it's so interesting. Oh, you went to the supermarket. <laughs> wow. So cool. Uh, what did you buy? And you're like, oh, I um, Well, I, I thought that I was going to get cherries, but they were all out. Uh, and so I bought grapes. Grapes. Do you have some? Like, you're like, oh, I, I saved you some, actually. Oh, let's eat them, you know? And so there's this innocent perception, right? Radical acceptance. 
And, and this requires time, this requires dropping down, this requires no agenda, right? So if you came in with the agenda, you know, here you are, you're talking to your partner or something like that, and you're like, you went to the store, great. Did you get me broccoli? And you're like, oh, I got some grapes, you know? And then your partner's like, oh, grapes. You always buy those, you know? <laughs> I like broccoli, it's like a vegetable, you know? Um, I like both grapes and broccoli, just FYI. Um, so, so, so we have the idea of uh, Santosha not only being contentment, but also being this innocent perception, which is a loving gaze. So we simply look, no judgments, and just be present. And it's this sort of presence of, here I am, and here you are, and we're both okay, right? Simple. So hard because we're so busy, you know, we're running around and we're doing this and we're doing that. And now those of you who are in the training, you're like, I have all this reading I need to do. And, you know, I need to study where the anus is and all that stuff. You know what I mean? And then you're thinking about that. So even we get lost, even when we're studying yoga. Um, and then and then and then here we are. Right. So Santosha is innocent perception or loving gaze. So we think about that. How can we look upon everything with the eyes of love? We look, upon, we look upon ourselves with the same loving gaze, you know? We, we love what we see in the mirror. We practice it. It's a practice. We see ourselves in the mirror. You're good, you know? You're good. You too. Not just the other people. You too, right? Me too. So we think about that, right? So this is Santosha. Saoja Santosha can, go, can move very deeply into the, into the body, into your life. Now, the remaining three yamas, uh, sorry, the remaining three niyamas are part of what Patanjali also includes at the beginning of book two of the Yoga Sutras as Kriya Yoga, the yoga of purification. As you can see, we are already talking about purification. So what is the difference? No difference, right? We understand that saucha is an act of purification. Santosha is an act of purification as well. What are we purifying? Our agenda, our ego our preconceived judgments, right? Our reactions towards things so that instead of being reactionary, we can observe, you know? And again, remember, you have no chance of succeeding at that 100%, and that's okay, all right? It's not like now you heard the talk and forevermore, you're never gonna react, you simply see whatever is simply is, you know? If it's raining, you observe, rain is present, and then you carry on. I, I'm not like that, you know? I get very depressed if it rains for too many days, and then and then I, I start to think, you know, I, 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 I unfortunately, for Tim, he's had to be imported to Miami um, from Denmark because I, um, I, it, when it's gray for too many days, I just don't, I, I, I stop being able to maintain the Santosha. Um, primarily because I, I look at the weather app and figure out what's going on in Miami. And I'm like, it could be sunny. It's, it's been gray for four months. You know? Can we move, please? That's basically what I said to him about, you know, 12 years ago or so, you know, I'm happy he said yes. <laughs> um, so, Saucha uh, Santosha, then the next of the Niyamas, which begins what the, the, the trinity of the, the, the Kriya Yoga path or the Yoga of Purification, um, we begin with Tapas or Tapaha. Right? So, this is the interesting thing about Tapaha is we think about Tapas or Tapaha, Tapas as discipline, effort. Right, um, literally translated as heat. So we have this notion of lighting a fire in the body, 
So, and in the mind, we're lighting a fire. Fire purifies, right? There is also the idea of the fire of purification. In the Ashtanga Yoga method, the idea of the practice is that we are not putting too much heat in the room within reason. Guruji, Patabi Joyce, and Sharat Joyce, they both instruct the students to make the room a comfortable temperature, you know. So um, here in Miami, we like to cool the room to 80 degrees. And in other places in the world, they like to heat the room to about 75. <laughs> so uh, I, when, I, when I share that with um, some, you know, northern practitioners, they don't understand, you know, how do you cool a room to 80 degrees? <laughs> well, if we don't turn it on, it just gets hotter and hotter. And we it can go, I think the, once I saw the temperature reading of over 100, you know? So people have called us and said, do you have that hot yoga? And I thought, yeah, we do. <laughs> we do, yep, we got it. Come on over and practice. <laughs> it's hot, right? So, um, yeah, uh, so the, 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 we're talking about internal heat. And uh, the, in the Ashtanga method, the heat should come from within to symbolize the fire moving from the inner body outward. And one of the best um, analogies that I like for this is coconut oil. Mm. So uh, here in Florida, coconut oil is very liquid most of the year. But in that one week in January where we're all freezing, the coconut oil will become solid. If you don't live in Miami, your coconut oil um, is most likely solid if you live in the northern parts of the world or the very southern parts of the cold climate. Coconut oil is like a solid substance, like a candle. If you try to heat your coconut oil up from the outside, what do you notice? If you try that, what do you notice? So it heats up from the outside, and there's like a lump in the middle, right? Coconut oil also melts at body temperature. So your body is essentially coconut oil, right? It's a metaphor, right? <laughs> um, so when you heat yourself up from the outside, you can become very hot on the outside, but on the inside, those organs and those tissues which need the most cleansing in your body could remain cold or not as warm as the outside. However, in the Ashtanga method, we're aiming to heat your body up from the inside so that the inside, the core of the body, becomes warm first and then the heat radiates outward so that it's a totally different method um, of heating the body up. And the idea is to create and generate this, you know, uh, sort of profuse sweating that happens during the yoga practice. And the idea is that it comes from the inside and then moves outward. So we're talking about the physical tapas, the internal fire of purification. However, that fire has or, or, or should not uh, only be physical. The fire should have a spiritual or mental or emotional component as well. And we think about tapas as purifying our, again, we think about the, the, the effort, the discipline required to apply uh, purification of the thoughts, purification of the emotions, to act in a way that's different than what we've known. This requires great effort. So when we talk about effort, we're talking about the way that yoga asks you to change your life. So when I first started practicing Ashtanga Yoga, I hated to get up in the morning. I still really don't like it so much, um, you know. So, but the practice requires effort. How many of you like to get up in the morning, like really early? Any, some of you, how many hate to get up in the morning? 
right? Maybe 50-50. We're really good yogis here, right? Most, uh, so you have to change. Or we think about, again, changing the food. We're back to the food. This is painful. It requires effort, you know? If we look inside and we think, oh, tapas, I've got to put effort and discipline and change my lifestyle and, you know, change what I eat and change what I consume and what time I go to bed and all this sort of stuff. It's a whole lifestyle change. This is effortful. Another way of thinking about it is that every practice should have the element of something a little bit hard, something that's a challenge. It shouldn't be too easy. We should have this feeling of, oh, now I have to either force myself to get up out of bed a little bit or I have to give up a little something to be there. It has to be, it has to have a little bit of the element of effort, <coughs> right? If it's easy, then, and only relaxing and only easy, then we miss the tapas. We miss the purification. We miss the, 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 the very thing that will strengthen us and give us determination, that strength that we need to apply the lessons of yoga into our life. All right, so tapas. And now we think about tapas as if we are not moderate with tapas, right? Then it can lead us into some trouble. So I had a student once who came up to me and said, I love Ashtanga yoga. And I thought, this is wonderful, you know? And then he said to me, I like pain, you see. And I, I, um, <laughs> you know? and I'm looking for more of it. And I'm good. I just, this is good for me, you know? And I thought, oh, um, maybe, maybe not like that. I don't know, you know? So there's too much tapas, right? Too much fire. Remember, we're thinking about all of these applied in moderation for the householder. We're not looking to try to be an ascetic. We're not looking for pain. We're not trying to go in search of difficult, challenging lessons. We're just trying to put our effort into learning the lesson at hand, to being available, to experience, to being available, to put in the work where the work is needed. Right? That's all. If the work is practiced six days a week, that's an effort for many people. If that's not your work, sometimes the effort is softening the edges around your six-day-a-week practice. Sometimes your effort, you know, is not drinking wine every night. You think, every night you think, I want to have a glass of wine. And then you think about the next morning trying to do backbends, and you think, ooh, maybe I don't have wine. Is there any chamomile tea? You know? And then your friends are like, what are you doing? You're like, hey, I don't have to do backbends tomorrow morning. I just I pass me the tea. Um, so our life changes. There's a suffering. There's an effort, discipline around that. So, but we must, again, moderation, right? Too much pain. If you go in and you think, oh, here I am. My purpose is to be disciplined and experience pain and go into it. Then that fire will consume you. Unmoderated, unchecked tapas creates injury, harm, self-harm, right? So if we're moderate... Then what it said is that this is like a good fire for cooking. It's not an explosion in your kitchen, all right? It's just a good fire. You can cook what needs to be cooked and then eat and enjoy the fruits of your labor. If you have too much fire in the kitchen, you make explosion. Then this is a big problem, right? You have to make a renovation of the kitchen. Hopefully you have still have eyebrows, all right? <laughs> if you don't have enough energy to generate tapas, this is also a problem because you can't get the fire started, all right? So sometimes it's very difficult to, for a student to push themselves a little bit. Sometimes the students are, oh, I love yoga. I love it so much. Oh, when have you practiced? Oh, I can't remember. 
you know. <laughs> but I, I love yoga. It's so nice. I just want to support the practice as much as possible. I love that you do it, for example, you know. <laughs> right? <laughs> so then there's no tapas there. Right? The tapas, you have to unroll your mat. And, in, in a, in, and so we're looking to, you know, stimulate the fire, right? So we need to have enough fire to get the flames burning. Not too much, so we explode the kitchen, right? So just in between. Then the idea is that the tapas lights the fire of purification, which eventually will succeed at creating kaya indriya siddhir, meaning cleaning the body of all impurities. This happens after a long, long time. Now, there's a short-term time frame when you can start to experience the long-term results where you kind of get a preview. Three months practice, good food eating, you can experience some of the long-term benefits of yoga. One year practice, good food eating. This is, you know, Guruji's qualification. One year practice, good food eating. Uh, he said your life starts to change, right? 10 years practice, 20 years practice, the cells of your body have renewed themselves. They're a different structure. They're comprised of different things. Your quality of your thoughts have changed. And now, instead of only the body being purified, that flame is said to burn as the lamp of knowledge, jnana diptir, the lamp of knowledge in your heart, which you can shine in the world. It's a wonderful transformation when you think about it. First, you work on yourself and become purified and learn to generate the, you know, that that true source of fire, of flame, of light comes from within. And then once your flame starts to burn and move into the heart center, then you begin to be an overflow for others. So this is tapas, right? Now the next one, swadhyaya. Swadhyaya is interesting. Um, swad is up, broken up into two Sanskrit words, swad and adhyaya, right? Swad and adhyaya. So swad is the self, the soul, the individual, the human being. Huh? Adhyaya, individual lessons, individual study, um, and just life lessons. So swadhyaya together uh, contextually has a few different meanings. Um, the first of which is that it is a paradigm of thought. So a paradigm of thought sort of means a mode of thinking. And this mode of thinking is the, the mode of thinking of the spiritual aspirant. So this is, uh, uh, let me unpack that a little bit. When you are a spiritual aspirant, according to traditional yoga philosophy, you enter a situation not immediately to debate, deconstruct, or burn down. You enter a situation, whether that situation is a teaching experience or whether that situation is a sacred text, you enter it to say to yourself, how is it that this experience can help me on my journey of yoga? How is it that I can learn from this experience? How can I take away some piece of wisdom from this experience? In other words, it's a humble paradigm that allows you to learn first and question later. This is I would say the complete opposite from Western intellectual thoughts. You know, we're trained to deconstruct things. We're trained to go in and pick up the flaws and say, oh, you contradicted yourself here. Oh, you said that here. Oh, you're a hypocrite over there. You know, we're all hypocrites in our own ways. You know, again, we completely fail at being 100% in line with the yamas and niyamas. So we understand swadhyaya. Here I am and I'm interacting with the teacher. The teacher will be flawed. They are not God. 
This is important. So your teacher will have flaws. You have the choice. Do I pick apart my teacher's flaws or do I decide to learn what wisdom I have, I can learn from their experience? Your choice. Obviously, if the faults are too big, you have to find a new teacher, okay? <laughs> All right? So with everything within reason, you should not subject yourself to harm based on this. Now, the same thing is true when you are applying that framework of thought to the sacred texts. I can't tell you how many times I talked to yoga students that decided to pick up the yoga sutras and say, oh, I don't understand, you know, yoga sutra number, you know, something from book one is contradicting from book two. I don't understand, did Patanjali not, you know, get what's going on here? This doesn't make sense. And I'm thinking, okay, have you studied? No, I just skimmed it a little bit, you know? <laughs> and, then, and then we're immediately, we wanna, we, wanna, we wanna deconstruct it and argue with it. So there's this argumentative sort of debate, which we're masters at in, you know, Western world and, and, in, and in many, you know, in many places. So we think about this as a, a change of paradigm to come in with humility. And so what is it I can learn from this situation? How is it that I can use this for my benefits, not my ego benefit, but the benefit of my spiritual journey? Learn from every situation that you encounter, right? So this is another way to think about uh, Swadhyaya. The common translation is um, spiritual self-inquiry, right? But how do you use spiritual self-inquiry? You can use it on, again, as an individual level, not only the teacher, every single situation in your life has the opportunity to be a mirror for yourself. And every sacred text that you read has an opportunity to teach you something. Every sacred text, not only that from your religion, every sacred text. So it's, a, again, a paradigm of learning. I love this paradigm of learning. And an, another way you could think about this paradigm of learning is the idea of a beginner's mind. So that we come in with the idea of not knowing. We come in with the idea of, I, I'm an empty vessel, fill me up, right? And, and the longer you've been practicing and the more you're identified in the role of a teacher, the harder it is to be that empty vessel, you know? Because we, we accumulate knowledge, which can, if you hold on to it too rigidly, create a prison around this um, spontaneous expression of the self, uh, the spontaneous expression of, of, of wisdom. Wisdom and knowledge, I, I find, can be different sometimes, okay? Swadhyaya, a different paradigm of learning. To understand that the yogi aspirant starts off from the basis of humility, from the basis of an empty cup, and then uses every situation, whether the posture, whether study of a text, or whether time spent with a teacher to reflect on their own journey. Another way of thinking about this is the ability to integrate the lessons of your life. You know, um, life is also a wonderful teacher, but life can be your hardest teacher sometimes. So if you aren't able to interact with some of the most or, or reflect back on some of the most difficult experiences of your life and let them be your teacher and let them, um, you know, remove and pure, remove things which are uh, obstacles to that narrow road of yoga. If you're not willing to let them purify your mind and purify your heart, then we'll end up with this perspective like you're, that we feel like a victim to life. You know, that life is happening to us. And if we change to Swadhyaya, then we understand that, you know, we are co-creators of our life experience. And this is happening, and then this is your takeaway from what that experience is. And you can empower yourself with that change of, change of mindset, change of paradigm, okay? 
We've only got one more, all right? Ishwara Pranidhana. Ishwara Pranidhana, um, mm, translated as Pranidhana, devotion, dedication, um, worship, reverence, total surrender, right? Ishwara, translated as the highest truth, the ultimate beloved, the torchbearer, the original source, or simply God, surrender to God, or devotion and service to God, right? So this seems to come out of left fields, you know? So we're here with, oh, Saucha, I'm going to purify my thoughts, Santosha, be content with all that is, you know? Tapas, we've got to practice, and it's going to be a little difficult, so we accept that, and definitely no more wine. And um, Swadhyaya, we have to learn from our experiences and come in with a humble heart and surrender and total devotion to God. And we're like, huh. So, yeah, okay, you know, if we were, you know, if we were here, if, you, if we were just sort of making this up on the fly, that would, some, would feel like, well, where does this fit in, you know? And we think about it, this is, I feel it's so important that Patanjali puts this in here, because everything that we've looked at up until now is an act of the individual volition. So this means that you are the actor in all of these. It's your effort. You're choosing Saucha. You practice it. You choosing Santosha. It's an effort. The equanimous mind is another way to think of Santosha. This is your effort, your training. These are all you. You train. Without Ishwara Pranidhana, surrender and devotion to God, you could make that mistake of hubris to think, and now I have become God, you know? Because you could check off all those boxes and you could think, if I do succeed at 100% Santosha and 100%, you know, Sautra, then I will become the divine creator of all. You know, what greater hubris is that? Um, the only guarantee, if you think like that, you will come crashing down to the earth and face your humanity when, and, and hopefully you'll wake up and realize that it is a gift. It's not a curse. You know, so Ishwara Pranidhana, surrender and devotion to God. Another way to think about this, you can work and work and toil at your labors, but it is only through grace, through the grace of God that we attain. You never get to choose when the results come. You're not in control. You work, but there are forces that are bigger and grander than you can imagine at play. And, you know, potentially is very specific in Ishwara Pranidhana. Another way to think of Ishwara is how you experience God. If many people don't like the word God, they hear God and they oh no, you know, there are cultural and historical associations with the word God. You know, I had to make my own peace with it. I wasn't raised with any religion. So my experience of the divine has been entirely first person through um, the openness that's been cultivated through many years of yoga practice. And Ishwara Pranidhana is a beautiful way of saying surrender and devotion, meaning love for the gift of life, love for the experience of, you know, being immersed in that holy and divine presence. And, 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 and what a relief it is to realize that it wasn't all on your shoulders anyway, you know? And if we think about this, Ishwara Pranitana, another way to, again, think about it is grace. Grace, which is not dependent or conditional on the actions that you've performed, right? Grace, which is unconditional. Grace, which comes from love 
um, love being rooted in something that is beyond the material plane. Ishvara Pranidhan is so important. Now, this will help give you faith and motivation when you fail at all that other stuff, right? Because you realize, oh, you know what? I'm going to... I'm going to trust that God has a plan for me in this, even though I tried to maintain, I had a, here's an extremely funny story about that. I had a friend of mine who was like very inspired by um, Jesus and he decided he was going to do a 40 day water fast and replicate that experience. Um, uh, you know, again, we should embrace moderation. Um, so I've done many fasts. I've never done a water fast. Uh, maybe one day, but it's not, I, I, I like my tea. Um, so, so he was doing this, this 40 day water fast. He made it to about day 20 something, you know, he was quite far into it. And then, you know, he was really committed he was journaling and meditating every day and trying to experience total surrender to God and only drinking water. And, and then he said that suddenly he found himself conscious holding half of a Snickers bar. <laughs> things, you know, in the world. And he looked down and he said, have I eaten this? You know? And he touched his mouth and found chocolate residue and realized, I guess I failed, you know. <laughs> you know, without grace, how could we forgive ourselves for such colossal failure, you know, without understanding, okay, you know, I'm not Jesus, right? I didn't make it through those 40 days, you know, um, and, and, and then to understand, okay, Ishvara Pranidhana, surrender and devotion to God. Another way to think about this, the path of surrender is the, the element that allows you to relax. You relax. It's not all on you, you know? You don't have to stress out about it. You don't have to be like, oh, okay, I'm gonna do 10 hours of yoga today. If you want to, do it from love and enjoyment, but not because you think you're gonna become a better person in the sense of you're going to earn your worthiness from more practice. You know, I'll tell you, the person that you are now, you can grow as a person through every practice, but just because you put your leg behind your head doesn't mean that you're a better person. Be a better person today and then when you put your leg behind your head one day, you'll just be that better person who also happens to have their leg behind their head. <laughs> or not, you know? And that's okay too, right? Ishwara Pranidhana. Now, Patanjali spends sutra upon sutra upon sutra. He takes a deep dive into Ishwara Pranidhana. Um, in terms of his um, cosmology or his way of thinking about the world, the inclusion of Ishwara, the, the reintroduction of the notion of God is very specific to Patanjali because in the universe of Patanjali, um, the, the whole, uh, the, the, the epistemological framework or the knowledge framework that Patanjali takes root in is non-theistic. There's no mention of God. So it's a very conscious and considered choice that Patanjali reintroduces this notion of surrender to a higher power, this notion of grace. And I would, I would, I would wager to say, you know, I never met Patanjali, but I would wager to say it was from some personal experience, right? Um, and if this can create a huge experience of faith to recognize that you are cared for on such a divine and grand level that you can relax a little bit and realize, okay, I'm good. I'm gonna keep practicing, I'm gonna do my work, but that there's a basic goodness within you, that you have been, you know, you're here for a purpose, 
and that purpose is goodness and that there's goodness inside of you. And you can rest a little bit with that. So I really like this notion of surrender. However, you know, we have to remember it's couched within the niyamas. So you must continue working, right? We can't have too much surrender. Oh, you know, if God is looking after me, then I'll just lie here, <laughs> you know, forever and see what happens. I'm a leaf in the winds and I'll go where I go. Okay, take vows of a sannyasin if you want to do that, right? Take the vows of a sannyasin and then live as a mendicant, you know, and, 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 and follow only that. But as, as a householder, uh, to, to have this notion that your life is uh, cared for by a divine presence and that you can experience that through surrender and devotion and first-person experience, that you can touch and experience the divine is a, a, a beautiful thing. Truly beautiful. Hmm. These are the niyamas, and they are a, a, a sort of the substance of a lifelong journey into the spiritual practice of yoga. They're not something we can think about once in a year. I'll think about them a little bit differently, and I hope you will too. And it'll be something that you'll constantly refer to, just like any piece of information from a wisdom tradition. It's a living tradition. It's made alive by your presence, your study, your commitment, and your experience. So uh, whatever we've heard or experienced today, let it be a, a seed that's planted, but give the seed the space to grow, evolve, change, and maybe one day bear its fruit. And let that fruit be the fruit of enlightenment. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Why don't we end with the closing prayer? Okay. Swasti Prajabhyaha Swasti Prajabhyaha Paripalayantam Paripalayantam Nyayena Margena Nyayena Margena Mahim Mahim Shaha Mahim Mahim Shaha Gobramanebhyaha Gobramanebhyaha Shubhamastu Nityam Shubhamastu Nityam Lokaha Samastaha Lokaha Samastaha Sukhino Bhavantu Sukhino Bhavantu Thank you so much, everyone. Namaste. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good. Thanks. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Chat and Chai Yoga Talks from Miami Life Center. Thanks for tuning in. In our other episodes, you'll find talks on each of the limbs of Ashtanga Yoga according to Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And come visit us. We're in the heart of South Beach in Miami. Miami Life Center is dedicated to the study of yoga and the lineage of our teachers, Shri K. Patabi Joyce and his grandson, Arshrat Joyce.
We have Mysore classes, guided classes, pranayama, restorative classes, and we even have workshops with world-renowned teachers and community events going on all the time. Sangha, translated as community, is really important to us at Amalsi. We recognize it as a necessary pillar for walking down the spiritual path, and this podcast is a way for us to extend our Sangha to all of you listening, to create a stronger and more connected community of yoga practitioners. If you're interested in learning more about us and what we do, or if you just want to stay in touch, visit our website, www.miamilifecenter.com, or follow us on Instagram at Miami Life Center. Thanks for listening to Chat and Chai, Yoga Talks from Miami Life Center. Namaste. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Yoga Inspiration Show. It's always a pleasure to share the inner space of the yoga journey with you. Remember, you can always find me online at omstars.com, www.omstars.com, and on my YouTube channel and all social media at Kino Yoga. I look forward to seeing you on the mat, and more than anything, I hope you take the inspiration to practice yoga and make your world a better place. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.